My text is found in verses 24 to 26 of Hebrews chapter 11, and I want us to think about the faith of Moses. I read those verses with you again, verses 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is a chapter that speaks of faith. The first person that is mentioned is Abel. He had faith in God. And the person who has faith in God and in Christ, the coming Savior at that time, is now in heaven. And we read of many people in the Old Testament age, men and women, who exercised faith, put their trust in the coming Savior, and today, cleansed through the offering of Christ for sin on Calvary's cross, are rejoicing in the presence of God. We're just going to concentrate on one person, the great lawgiver of the nation, the great leader, and indeed, even to this day, the great hero of the Jewish people, Moses, the son of Amram, and Jochebed. And we want to think firstly of the background to his faith. And the background is found in the verse before our text. We are told that by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So here are two people, parents of a child. They have to defy a command of the king. And that king was the greatest king in the world at that time. Uh, we, we still admire the ingenuity of the Egyptians and the construction of the pyramids without all the equipment that we have today. And here was a command from their great captain and leader, Pharaoh the king. And he said, all the male children are to be taken to the river. They are to be drowned in the river. To defy the king would have meant death, instant death. And yet Amram and Jochebed, they believed their child was a gift from God. And they cared for that child. And the result was uh, they devised a way. And I think it was chiefly Jochebed, the mother, devised a way, making an ark of bulrushes, placing the child at the edge uh, of the river Nile and watching over that child uh, in defiance of the king of Egypt. Why did they do it? Well, the Bible tells us. They did it because they trusted in God. And those parents were wonderful parents to three children. They had a daughter, the oldest in the family, Miriam, and she's called a prophetess in the word of God. And then they had Aaron, the first great high priest of the nation. What a family, a family who loved the Lord a family who walked with God, a family who taught their children the things of God and trained up their family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what a challenge to every parent, to every grandparent. When God gives us children, we have a responsibility to those children, not to give in to their every whim or their every wish, not to be cruel to them, not to set a hypocritical example before them, but to think of those children as a precious trust that is given to us 
to train up in God's ways, to pray over them, to plead for them, to long for them, that we might see them brought to Christ. It is a tragedy, you know, in this present age to see the depletion of the church. Uh, We uh, see it right across the United Kingdom. Uh, You come to a funeral service and a godly uh, man or a godly woman is being buried and in comes a family that hasn't maybe been in the church for years. They come in, they have been brought to the church when they were children, uh, but they've wandered away and out of the path of righteousness, many of them unsaved, children unsaved, grandchildren unsaved, and what a tragedy. Oh, that we might see our children, our grandchildren, if God should give us great-grandchildren, all walking with God and all found in the center of God's will. Here is an example to follow. Here is the background to the faith of Moses. Admire Moses, yes, and admire the grace of God in his life, but go a step further, go further back. Admire Amram and Jochebed, who believed that this child should not be sacrificed, that it would be wrong, it would be evil in the sight of God. Indeed, they must have felt the same about every poor boy that was brought down to the river and was drowned, and that boy's life was brought to an end. But that leads us to think now about the faith of Moses and and where, we might ask, did his faith come from? Because I want to show you that his faith was tremendous. He knew that he wasn't Pharaoh's daughter's son uh, because we're told in our text he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Here was a child that was brought at a very early age uh, to the home of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Now, I'm sure you are aware of the circumstances. When he was laid in that ark, Pharaoh's daughter came down to wash in the river. And just at that time, a cry was heard. And, uh, well, in fact, it was before the cry was heard. The, The little ark was discovered. And when the lid was lifted, the little boy began to cry. And that touched the heart of Pharaoh's daughter, whose name we don't know. And she said, it's one of the Hebrews' children. And she, she took pity upon the child. And she took that child to be her own child. Miriam was standing by. She said, would you like me to get a nurse for the child until he's old enough to come into your home? And very uh, cleverly, she went home and got her own mother to come and look after that child, take it into their home for a few years until he could then go into uh, the palace in which Pharaoh's daughter lived. But Moses, even though he'd been very, very young when he came into the home of Pharaoh's daughter, he knew he wasn't Pharaoh's daughter. But he also knew something more that didn't appear very obvious. He knew that the children of Israel were God's people, for he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, our text tells us, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now you look at those Israelites, Do they look like God's people? They are under the lash of the taskmaster. Their slaves are downtrodden. Their spirit has been crushed. How could they be God's people? God, the the God who made all things, the God who raised up Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who raised up Joseph and led him out of the prison to be the ruler next to Pharaoh in the land. 
Well, look at these people now. How can they be God's people when they're crushed beneath the feet of an oppressor? How can they be God's people? But Moses sees them as God's people. He believes they have a future. He believes that God will bless them in the long run, in spite of the appearances. And then he knew something more, and this was the greatest knowledge of all. We are told uh, that uh, he uh, not only chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, but he esteemed, notice these words, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. The reproach of Christ. That word Christ in the Greek is Christos, and it's, uh, it means anointed, and it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So what is Moses saying to us here, or what is the Bible saying to us about Moses? It's saying that Moses believed in the coming of the Messiah, in the coming of the one that we know came, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What tremendous knowledge Moses had as the bedrock of his faith. And we ask, where did he get this knowledge from? Now, much of the knowledge may have come from his own family. Uh, The commentators reckon that Moses was probably about four years old when he was taken into the home uh, of Pharaoh's daughter. And a child can learn a lot in four years. Uh, We uh, sing in our children's chorus, a little child of seven or even three or four can enter into heaven through Christ, the open door. Uh, My nephew's uh, little boy, six now, he came to Christ when he was four years old. And I'm told he asks his Sunday school teacher some very deep, profound, penetrating questions. So a child can grasp a lot by the age of four. And then, of course, we may think of it this way. Amram and Jochebed were quite ingenious in the way they looked after Moses and cared for him when they were defying Pharaoh's command. I am sure that they were ingenious also in finding ways of getting opportunities to say something to Moses, to tell him about the people of God, to tell him about God's mighty creation, to tell about the call of Abraham and how he preserved Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and how uh, he uh, had made this world, the sun, the moon, the stars, and how he had promised a savior. Uh, Right at the time when Adam and Eve sinned, he had promised a savior who would come and deliver men and women from their sins. And I have no doubt that they made uh, ingenious efforts to reach Moses with the truth of the word of God. Now, also, Moses may have heard the truth from hostile sources. You say, how could that be? Well, sometimes the devil outdoes himself. Uh, You think of the dying thief on the cross. There's a man who's dying for his crimes. Not much chance of that man getting right with God. How is he ever going to hear the truth? Maybe he's heard some rumors uh, when he's going on in his uh, career of crime. He may have, have heard some rumors about this mighty miracle worker and great teacher called Jesus Christ, but he has dismissed them. But on the cross, he notices the person who's hanging beside him, and he hears what the people are saying. 
He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Come down from the cross. He saved others. And then the dying thief could look up. Not sure what side he was on, but he could look up and he could see the inscription above the head of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's all hostile information. Hostile. And yet it's information. And indeed, it is the truth. It is the truth. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Jesus Christ is King of the Jews. Jesus Christ saved others. And then he listened, of course, and this is going a little bit out of the way of my thoughts, but he listened to Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he thinks to himself, this is a very different person from my colleague and myself. And he turns to Christ and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom or when thou comest in thy kingdom. He realizes this is the Savior. Much of that information, while he's hanging on the cross, has come from hostile sources. You see, the devil sometimes outdoes himself. I remember reading of Spurgeon, uh, and uh, this man was on the tram car. He was uh, passing by uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Spurgeon's time, uh, and uh, he, he spoke against Spurgeon. Uh, and he saw all the crowds, and Spurgeon had six to 7,000 people morning and evening every Sunday, and sometimes he asked his regular congregation to vacate their seats so that uh, outsiders could come in. <laughs> you wouldn't dare do it here. We wouldn't dare do it in our churches, for nobody would come in. Well, he sometimes did that. And this man looked out, and he says, there's all those people going to hear that man. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he had derogatory words to say of Spurgeon. And there was a Jew uh, on that vehicle. And the Jew heard what the man was saying. And he said, if I had a shop and uh, people said I wasn't selling the right product uh, and the, the people were queued to get into my shop, I would point to those people coming in as an evidence that I was selling the right goods. And the Jewish man said, I've half a mind to go and hear him myself. That really, that really challenged that man. And he went to hear Spurgeon subsequently, and as a result, he was saved. And I could give another example. Out in Australia, a man was saved through reading a sermon of Spurgeon's that was blood bespattered. And you know where the blood came from? It came from the man that that man had murdered. He murdered a man. He found on his possession a sermon of Spurgeon's. He read the sermon. He got saved. There was hostility in that man's heart, but the Lord turned it all around and brought him to Christ. Now, these people, these uh, Egyptians, they may have been speaking against, Christ, against Moses and saying, oh, you're a slave and, and so on. You're expecting a Messiah. You think the people of God uh, or the Jewish people are the people of God? And there's no, such, there's no such thing. Or they wouldn't have used the word Jew. The Israelites, they would have said, they're not the people of God. And that fosters an idea in the mind. Who ever said they were the people of God? Could it be they're the people of God? Could it be a Messiah is coming? As they claim, hostile sources. And then one more thought as to how this information came. It may have come from the Hebrew slaves 
who were faithful to the Lord, who had a burden to spread the truth and to invite men and women to repent of their sins and to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. One way or another, the truth came to Moses. He was hearing that which was right. God had made the heavens. God had made the earth. He could look up and he could see and he could hear all the report of what God had done down through the centuries and he could think, well, we, the people of God may be in a difficult situation now. The, the Messiah may not have come, but what they're speaking, what they're speaking is right. What they're speaking makes sense. And I know that Joseph was the governor in this land and I know that what Joseph said came true and all the Egyptians know it. It's the truth. Yes, you know what the Bible says? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have the word of God. Not only do we have it, but also we have a duty to spread it. How shall they hear without a preacher? We've got to get the truth out. Tell men and women, tell boys and girls. And one of the awful things of today is the lack of children in Sunday school and in children's meetings and so on. Comparatively, parents are depriving their children of the truth. They let them hear this, that, and the other thing, but they won't allow them to hear the truth. And, and they think we're simpletons. Um, they think we believe in fairy stories and that it's all uh, you know, pie in the sky, that there's no substance to it. In spite of the fact that this chapter at the very beginning says that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is substantial, and it has substantial support. One of our ministers who's now retired, the Reverend David Lennon, produced a little booklet called Who is the Fool? And in the first two chapters, he quotes from believing scientists. He has 42 of them. And then in the second chapter, he quotes from atheists. Now, among the scientists he quotes are Isaac Newton, who's judged to be the greatest scientist and mathematician that ever lived. And here is what Newton said, we account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. Michael Faraday, one of the great physicists of all time, developed the sciences of electricity and magnetism. And it says among his many discoveries and inventions was the generator. He believed the Bible. And he said, the Bible and it alone, there's nothing added to it nor taken away from it by man, is a sole and sufficient guide for each individual at all times and in all circumstances. And there's 42 uh, people who are cited, some male, some female, uh, mighty people in science and in medicine, totally committed to the word of God. And then he deals with the unbelievers, the evolutionists. Uh, one man that he quotes is Professor George Wald. He was Professor Emeritus of Biology at Harvard. He won the Nobel Prize in Biology in 1971. He said, there are only two possible explanations as to how life arose. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution or a supernatural creative act of God. There is no other possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. But that just leaves us 
with only one other possibility. Now, remember, this is coming from a Nobel Prize winner. He won that prize in 1971. That's the year I was married. So it's not that long ago. Maybe you think it is a long time ago when you look at me, but uh, he says, one other possibility. That life came as a supernatural act of creation by God. But I can't accept that philosophy because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading to evolution. Uh, Sorry, not leading to evolution. Um, That seems a misquote. Spontaneous generation. um, Oh, yes, it is. Spontaneous generation leads to evolution. It is a proper quotation. It's my uh, clouded mind that almost felt I'd read something that was wrong. Second quotation. I'm only going to take two. Dr. Carl Sagan was an atheist and he was an eminent mathematician. And he estimated uh, the odds uh, of even the simplest forms of evolution taking place. Now, we're not dealing with full-blown evolution uh, from the littlest thing uh, to the people that I look at today and that you look at. No, there's the simplest form of evolution. And the odds were these, one in ten to the power of two billion. Now you say, that doesn't mean a thing to me. Well, just to give an example of, or or an illustration of what it means, if you were to write down the odds against the simplest forms of evolution, according to this eminent mathematician, it would take 6,000 books of 300 pages each. So that's 1,800,000 pages just to write down the odds against evolution. And that's an absolute possibility. It's a mathematical impossibility. So it isn't possible for evolution to have taken place. We come to Professor George Wald. He says the only alternative is supernatural creation. So our faith is solidly based. It's the faith of the atheist the faith of the unbeliever that is airy-fairy, it is wishful thinking. And as uh, Dr. Wald said, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to. It had implications for his life. He didn't want those implications. He didn't want to repent. He didn't want to take Jesus Christ as his Savior. Let's have confidence in what we believe. Uh, And uh, it is true. And every time man goes out to destroy the things of God, he always fails. They used to say uh, that there was no such city as Ur of the Chaldees from which Abraham came. And in the early part of the 20th century, archaeological digs took place in the area and they discovered Ur. They discovered that city. And it was an advanced city, uh, an important uh, industrial uh, trade route. uh, And uh, they had exquisite jewellery and they had tackled advanced problems in trigonometry. There it was. The skeptics said it didn't exist until they found it. They said Moses could not have written the first book of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, because man didn't know how to write them. Then they discovered man had been able to write centuries before the time of Moses. Have confidence in the Word of God. In the last century, a man who's living, uh, he wrote, uh, or he set out to to write a book uh, against uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. His name was Joyce McDowell. And he felt he had to investigate the matter thoroughly. And when he investigated it thoroughly, 
uh, using, uh, you might say, a legal framework uh, to look at the evidence, he came to the conclusion, absolutely, Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, and he repented, and he called on the name of the Lord, and he wrote a book that I have read, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Be confident in the word of God. Moses heard the truth. You and I have the truth. And what we believe is substantial. It's backed up by evidence. And we can rejoice. But when we think of Moses, there's a second thought. And I know it should be my last thought. But I want to say that there were great difficulties presented to the faith of Moses. Trust in God is never without difficulty. There is a devil. And we might say there are attractions in the world. And we have the power of the old nature that we were born with to hold us back from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Moses. Acts 7 and 22 says he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. What does that say to you? Moses was an intellectual, a very great intellectual, probably of the caliber of Dr. Carl Sagan and Professor George Wald. And on top of that, he was mighty in deeds. So here is a man uh, who was a great soldier, who would have been a great military leader in Egypt. So he combines uh, the intellectual uh, with uh, the man uh, of great military wisdom and great military might and prowess. And when the truth comes to him, the choice is this. You stay with this military might Uh, You open your mind to the the great stores of intellectual knowledge that there are in Egypt. Or you go over to the side of these degraded and downtrodden Israelites, these slaves who have almost lost the will uh, to be anything in this world. And compound that with this thought. What an insult it may prove to Pharaoh's daughter After all, she loved him. She took him out of danger. She nourished him up. She provided him with everything. The opportunity for greatness in Egypt. And what's he going to do? He's going to step aside. He's going to renounce that relationship and refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And on top of that, it says when he was come to years He refused to be called her son. Uh, And that expression literally means uh, when he had become great. When he had become great. There he was. Some people believe, in fact many people believe uh, in the commentaries, that Pharaoh didn't have any sons. And that Pharaoh's daughter didn't have any sons. And therefore Moses was next in line to the throne. He will be the next Pharaoh. So he's just becoming great. Stop and think about it. Moses, at this time, we discover, was 40 years old. I don't know why he didn't come to this conviction before 40. It may have been that he was secretly uh, uh, trusting in, in the Lord. But he didn't come to his decisive stand until he was 40 years of age. Uh, And at that age, imagine this Pharaoh's daughter who drew him out of the water, was a young woman when she found him. Let's say she's been 15 and 18, at a guess. 
She's now about, say, 58. And her father, add 20 or more years to his age, that takes him into the region of 80 years of age. And I know we're speculating a little bit here, but not too much. Approximately 80. How much longer is he going to live? And then, who will step into his shoes? If the commentaries are right, Moses. So he's just about, you might say, to seize the throne of Egypt, to become the next pharaoh. What a difficulty to step aside. Ah, yes, but there's something on the other side as well. The Egyptians worshipped the sun. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped all sorts of horrible creatures. And to crown it all, they worshipped their pharaoh. They worshipped their king. Can Moses, with what he knows, can he really continue in that situation? I know there'd be affliction, there'd be reproach. He'd lose all the treasures of Egypt. He'd lose the pleasures of sin that are available to him. But can he really, can he really continue in that situation? And this is an extreme example in a way, an extreme example. But every person, every person that understands the truth and understands that he or she is a sinner is faced with a similar decision. And it's difficult. I'm sure many of you, if you're saved, you can think of the struggle. I can think of the struggle I had. There was nobody saved in my family. There were seven of us plus my parents. And what a struggle, realizing I was guilty, realizing I needed to be saved, stepping forward, calling upon the name of the Lord, putting myself out there, as a sinner, and then confessing Christ and telling my family that I had been saved from my sins and I was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I wasn't depending on the church. I was depending only on the Son of God. And you have come through something similar. What a struggle it is. And there is great turbulence in the soul when you come to repentance. But that takes me to my last point, the decisive factor in Moses' faith. What was decisive? Well, in three words, Moses looked ahead. Uh, we're told about the pleasures of sin, and then three little words are thrown in. For a season. How short that season is. You don't even know how long the little season will be. It may last days. It may last years. If it lasted 50 or 60 years, it's only, it's only a blink. It's only a blink. Blink and nearly you've missed it. Life is so short. The older we get, we realize much more how quickly life passes. Life at best is very brief. We sing it like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheep. Be in time. And we spend our years, Moses tells us, and it's Moses who tells us this in Psalm 90, as a tale that is told. Days gone by, people used to go for what we call in all parts of Ireland, a kele. And it was a visit. And someone would come uh, that had a great sense of, of being able to tell a story. And they could tell the whole story. They could cover a whole lifetime. Uh, maybe in an hour or two, they could give you many details. And you sat there, enraptured, and then it's over. Well, we spend our years as a tale that is told. And Moses said, the pleasures of sin... 
They're only for a season. And then it says, he had respect under the recompense of the reward. And that expression, had respect, it comes from a Greek word which means to look away. You're looking away from the present and you're looking away to the future. You're thinking of eternity. You're thinking of, I'm right with God. I may suffer now. I may lose out now. I may have reproach now. I may have affliction now. But throughout eternity, I will be with Christ. I will experience the joy of the Lord. So he's thinking ahead and he knew there was reward ahead. There was heaven ahead. There was fullness of joy in the presence of God ahead. And that's far more, far more than anything. My, when you start to put it in the balance, in the scale, how light, how light the attractions of the world are. Do I lose my soul for those things? Or do I lose out in this life no matter how much I lose out, no matter how much I suffer? Do I lose out if I have Christ, if I have heaven, if I have eternity in joy and in bliss? And when I hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You know, we live in an age of short-termism. Governments think short-term, as does the electorate. The government comes and presents all the nice things before you that they're going to do and how much better life is going to be under that party or the other party. And we just look at the promises and we think of the immediate future and we plunge in and we cast our vote for short-term gain. And with a decline in religious conviction, the vast majority of men and women live for the here and now. Isn't that tragic? You see it in every hand. The Lord's day means nothing. Just living for the here and now. Bringing children up to live for the here and now. And that is a great, great tragedy. And even many Christians are caught up in short-term thinking and short-term living, forgetting the long-term consequences for themselves and for their children. That is, I say to you, quite tragic. And it will have tragic consequences. So I come to a conclusion now I ask this question, how does our faith compare with that of Moses? It may not be of the same strength, but it must be, if we are to be in heaven, it must be of the same kind. Renouncing the world, repenting, turning your back on the world, turning your back on sin, and embracing, embracing the one that Moses embraced. He embraced the coming Messiah. We embrace the Savior who has come. The Savior who holds out his hands to us and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And who also says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Yes, think long term. Think long term. See the folly of dying in sin. Didn't we sing it? Sin with its follies, I gladly, I gladly resign. Turn from evil. If you're Christ's, be worthy of being a follower of the Savior. Give yourself to him. Surrender your heart, your life. Surrender your all to him. And he will bless you. He'll give you joy. He'll give you peace. He'll give you victory in his life. We'll sing one more hymn to bring our service to a conclusion. It's number 400.
and 8. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Can you say that? And if you're saved, uh, will you consecrate your life and sing it from the heart? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Blessed assurance, Jesus. Jesus is mine. No matter what I lose, Jesus, the Son of God, is mine.